How do you start a discussion on the knowledge of the holy? I was listening to Ravi Zacharias, one of the leading apologists that we have living among us today. He's got some great thoughts. If you, don't, if you want to podcast something that comes into your iPod or your, uh, your digital file, it would be a good one. And he tells the story, Ravi tells the story of when he was getting confirmed in his denomination for his pastorate, he had to complete some questions and answers. And the first one of the first question was, God is perfect, explain. He said they didn't give a lot of room. He said, I think they were wise men because the more room you give, the more likely you are to say something inaccurate. They gave it, and I'm paraphrasing Ravi here. He said, God is perfect because he is the only being that has sufficiency of and within himself. Everything else flows from something, flows from God. But God is the one who has all sufficiency, complete in and of himself. He says he didn't hear back from him, so he assumed the answer was sufficient and he's moved on and he tells it this way he says he turned to his wife it's a little bit tongue-in-cheek and he said the only question that I think that would have been harder is describe God and give two examples we say it with a little bit of jest but think about it Ravi also is the one who says he was invited invited into Russia to speak And he's going on and on about God and he's speaking about God and he's explaining why God is and why there is a being and why we need to give reverence to and leading to. And at the end, when a very frustrated man who lived in a communist country his whole life, he goes, you're speaking about this God, what are you talking about? Define it for me, describe it for me. Those of us who have grown up around discussions about God can get very, very cavalier sometimes. God is this and God is that and this, this and that and that and I understand. But our premise today, the premise for our future discussions in the coming weeks is that our thoughts about God are critical. I'll say it to you this way. Our religion, use that term loosely, our faith walk will never proceed further than our thoughts about God. The ceiling of our faith walk is the limiter of our thoughts about God. As we have high thoughts about God, as we think about God, as he is, so shall our maturity and our walk be. As we have low or inappropriate thoughts about God, so shall our witness and our faith walk be. Scholars today will say that the critical issue of the church, we come up with all kinds of issues. We need to evangelize more. We need to disciple more. We need to do this more. We need to have the social gospel more. We need to study the Bible more. All of these things are true, but many would say that they all flow from one thing, a lack of of a true knowledge of who God is. A lack of the knowledge of the holy. I'll submit to you and to me today 
that this is getting particularly worse. And one of the reasons is as simple as our short attention span. Pardon me for phrasing, but God is not a commercial. We will not understand God in a 25-second summary. We will not understand God in once-a-week, 30-minute messages. We will not understand God in a 30-second devotion that comes across our email and we say, good, I got that on my Blackberry on my way to work. I've had my devotion. We will know something of God. We will be maybe a second closer or one step closer than we were without that, but we will not know him as he can be known. I believe that the church before us a couple hundred years ago with maybe a little less distractions, a little less opportunity for pleasure, a little less opportunity for all types of activities had a little more time to study the word, made more time, and to read wonderful books and thoughts about God. I do like to read. My shelf is full of some that I've read and many that I still have yet to read. I will tell you that many of the thoughts that are in my heart that God has been working on for the last couple months deeply have come obviously from his word. But I will recommend to you two books. The title is borrowed from A.W. Tozer's self-same book, The Knowledge of the Holy. I would highly recommend it. And I brought with me today R.C. Sproul, The Holiness of God. You want to do some good reading? You might need a cup of coffee for a few thoughts, but I would highly recommend it. This is our issue today. The church, the world has the issue of we're trying to explain God and they barely have an attention span. Oh, explain God. Oh, that's your religion. I don't even want to get past it. I don't want to make the effort to get to know the highest thing that the mind conceived. The highest thoughts we can have in life are not about our spouses. They're not about our children. They're not about our churches. They're about God himself. The greatest use of our mind is the thoughts about God himself, the one who created the mind. And as we sit here, many of us will have say, come to a place, all right, let's talk about God. And we may have come to one or two of his attributes. God is all-powerful. God is loving. God is eternal. Maybe some of us make it to the third one. But that's kind of where we stop. We have a general idea of God. We get a couple of his attributes. And that should be sufficient. Again, the thought to me that has been heavy on my heart is that it is insufficient. God can lead us to a saving grace, I believe, with limited knowledge of himself. But that saving grace is there to spur us on into the depth and the knowledge of him as he is. If you would like a human example of this, I have no idea if these will work. They just, in my mind, I drove about 15 hours in the last two days on business trips, by the way. So I was, well, actually Thursday and Friday. So I had a lot of time to think. I tried not to write too much while I was uh, driving because I just kept thinking, you know, these thoughts in my head, why are we not offended personally? Why am I not when God is brought to a low level? I was thinking, uh, if somebody, I was thinking of my own father. Okay, if somebody came up to me and described my father in terms that were completely unrealistic, If they said, he still lives in Australia. My dad lived in Australia for seven years. He still lives in Australia. He's an architect. He's about six foot two and he's got blonde hair. 
was born and raised in Germany. None of those things would be bad enough of himself. I said, that's not my father. That's not who he is. He's a tailor. He lives in America. This is what he is. If someone would say, you know, let's say a public figure. Let's say someone like Ronald Reagan. Ronald Reagan was an actor from California. That's true. But if that's all we complete, not the man who was president of the United States, not the man who was involved in the Cold War, not the man. We are only given a snippet, and I would say to us, and I hope these examples can work even to a degree, the way we talk about God is saying certain things that are true insofar as they go. But let's tell the story. And we can't tell that we haven't been given. So our descriptions of God, let's look at them. Let's start to understand. And we are going to focus on Isaiah chapter 6, but it's going to take us a moment or two to get there. We need to focus on God's word. We need to focus on who he is and what he tells us of himself. And I've changed my mind. We are going to read Isaiah chapter 6. We won't expound on it for the moment. We will get back to it. But let us read it. Isaiah, a prophet of God, a righteous man in his day, the type of man that we would follow because he had it together. He understood who God was. He was writing. God was using him to write in his canon of Scripture. And here, Isaiah chapter 6, it's interesting to me, it's not chapters 1 through 5, it doesn't start right with this. Isaiah's going along, he's already had a life, and here's where he goes. Follow along with me as we read the first seven verses. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. And your sin atoned for. We need to look to the Bible. Isaiah here had a vision. And in that vision, things changed for Isaiah. He had a vision. God showed himself to him. And what we have today is not only Isaiah's record, but the record of Moses, the record of Paul, the the record of John, the revelator, to understand God wants us to know him through his revealed word, through his Christ. Let us look into his word. If you're taking some notes, today would be a good day to write down a few and just go back and take a look at them. As we start to look at this, let's take a look at the glory of God. We're going to take a look into Exodus. 
We need to understand a little bit of what we speak when we say the glory of God. We do have a human issue while you're looking into Exodus, I will tell you this. One of the philosophical issues we have with this whole discussion is we can only talk about things that we know and go up from there. If I said to you, start with exactly who God is, we'd be starting in some kind of mystery. We can't start there. Our minds are not built that way. So we use similes, we use metaphors, we use comparisons to start to understand things that are and work upwards because God is not the things that are. He's a creator of things that are. He is above them. And the writer Moses Forrest in Exodus 34, he says to here, I don't have this one actually down for us. He wrote on that God is like a holy fire. Pay attention with me once. I'm going to take a look here. Hold on. I do not have that reference for you, but that is okay. God has said to himself in scripture, he said to us that God is like a holy fire. And Moses was comparing God like a fire. Those that find that reference later on in scripture, you can let me know where it's at. Moses himself asked God to see his glory. Exodus 13, starting in verse 18, follow along. Moses said, please, Show me your glory. Moses asking, and here's God's response. And he said, I will make all of my goodness pass before you and will proclaim you before my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And when my glory passes, I will put you in a cleft of the rock. And I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. So let's just take a look at this for a second. Moses is saying, Lord, let me see your glory. Let me have a vision of it. Let me understand it. And God said, okay, all right. But look at all the contingencies he put. There's going to be a rock. There's going to be this cleft of the rock. When I come by, I'm going to put you in this cleft of the rock. So maybe you just have this kind of a faint vision. You're going to just be able to see a little bit. But when I come by, I'm also going to put my hand in front of you. And I'm going to turn around. In a rock, in a cleft of the rock, God's hand in front to the back. For the one who got closest to God. God's glory, his very essence, would destroy us in our fallen state. It literally would destroy us in in our fallen state. So Moses gets kind of close like this, right? Moses, what happens next? Because Moses is up there, he's on a mount with God. Moses comes down, turn ahead, chapter 34, verse 29, just two verses here. So when Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses and beheld the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid 
to come near him. It goes along in here that they have to put a veil on Moses. They've got to put a big veil on him as he kept talking to the people. He'd go talk to God. He'd come back and talk to people. This majestic face is you know, blowing out light, and they're afraid. So let's get this right. You're in the cleft of the rock. God's hand in front of you. God's hand, God has to walk backwards. So you just see the back would come down. That remnant of God's glory took on the flesh of Moses. Moses goes down to the point where the people are seeing the reflection of God's glory in Moses' face, and they were afraid. We're just starting to grasp the glory of God. When those of us that would ever come even remotely close to God, that our physical features would change to the point that others would see. Miracle to be sure, but a reality of the power of God's glory. Luke one forty nine, the second half says, holy is his name. God defines himself as the great I am. The Hebrews wouldn't even spell out his name, wouldn't want to say it, for they had a sense of a sense that we don't have today. We will be cavalier and say the man upstairs or just God will use things all kinds of loose ways, Lord, in a loose way. Yahweh, how do you even say it and spell it? We shouldn't because God is so holy and glorious and majestic. And the writer, Luke, the doctor says, holy is his name. The story of the Bible is the redemption, is the story of love towards us and redemption. But the story that is above that, the story that it starts with, the central theme of all of Scripture, is the holiness of God. The holiness of God is where the entire story flows. If you've got a pen and paper, I'd like you to do this. This is what has been on my heart. I drew a triangle. As we draw a triangle, what did Isaiah say? He was saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. We'll find that in Revelations. We'll find that here. The angels are saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. If you have our perfect triangle, we are not going to find that God is loving, loving, loving. We're not going to find that he's mercy, mercy, mercy. We're going to find that God is holy, holy, holy. When Jesus wanted to make reference to something powerfully, he said in the New Testament, he said, truly, truly, I say unto you, pay attention to this. This duplication of words. This is the time, the one time. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. So on your triangles, if you have the Trinity, God in his essence, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you will have on the outside of your triangle, holy, holy, holy. That is who God is. God equals holy. Holy equals God. It is a synonym for God. It could be a name for God, the Holy One. Inside of the triangle, I submit to you, is where we have God's attributes. He is mercy. He is all-powerful. He is infinite. He is righteous. Loving. Omnipresent. The attributes of God are many. And we can study each and every one of them, the completeness of them, all of them together, equal the holiness of God. If we want a definition then of holiness or holy, 
It basically means separate, to separate. That which is holy is separated, but separated in a very specific way. Maybe a second part of the definition is purity, that which is pure and perfect. And that's kind of where we usually start. Something that is holy, we think it's pure. It's probably the second part of the definition, that it is pure or perfect. The idea that it is separate, that it is different, that it is unique. The actual phrasing would be more of like, it is a cut apart. You ever heard the phrasing, modern day phrasing, something is a cut above? A cut above? That is this sense. That is this expression. It is above. It is different than anything else. And that difference, that holy otherness, the word, the best word that I can use to describe that for me, hopefully it works for you, is transcendence. God is holy other. He is transcendent, separate, perfect, pure. That is who our God is. He is holy because of himself, complete in himself. And in that holy God, it should inspire Holy wonder should inspire awe in his majesty. But the one that we often don't like to talk about, it should inspire a holy fear. So let's move along that way. As we start to understand the knowledge of the Holy One, let us take a look at the fear of the Lord. If you wanted to put the category of the first thing we've talked about, I want to give it to you in a psalm, in a verse, Psalm 4610. Be still and know that I am God. We're going to use some verses as our themes. This whole idea of taking time to know who, have a knowledge of the Holy One, is found in the psalm, the idea of be still and know that I am God. So that can be your key verse for this first part we just went over. Take the time to study and know who God is. Be still and know that I am God. If you will, the second one, or the second part is, our fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Proverbs 1.7. We think that this is sometimes one verse and not sure what to do with it. I will tell you it is something we need to spend some time on. We will do that right now. Deuteronomy 6.13. Write down these verses as we go, please. Deuteronomy 6.13. The writer writing. We'll do a couple in Deuteronomy. It was Jesus' favorite book to quote from. It is one of the books that we need to know well. It is the Lord your God, you shall fear him. You shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. It is the Lord your God, you shall fear him. That is where we need to be looking. 10.12 And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? But to fear the Lord your God. What does the Lord require of you? But to fear the Lord your God. Keep going. Chapter 31. Verse 12. Assemble the people, men and women and little ones, and the sojourner within your towns, that they may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God, and be careful to do all the words of his law. And that their children who have not known it may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God. The title of that section of scripture is the reading of the law. It is telling the people, get the people together, get the holy book out. Why? That the strangers in the town, that the children's in the town. This is the Sunday school. 
This is it. This is church. Get together. Read the book. Why? That they may learn to fear the Lord your God. There's a sense that we respect God and we have a reverence for him. But what it is telling us is that it is not completely intuitive. Intuitively, we will fight God. We are fighting God for power. When he reveals himself, we need to read his book that we may learn to fear God. Isaiah 8.13 says it as well. And then the one I've already quoted to us, Proverbs 1.7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. We cannot move forward unless we understand the holiness of God. If we do not have a reverence and a holy fear that can only come from God, we cannot move forward. In the coming weeks, we will talk about God's love. We will talk about his mercy. We will talk about what he does. But God's holiness cannot tolerate sin. God's holiness is perfect. God's holiness cannot tolerate Stan. Cannot. Will not. His righteousness. His complete judgment. He will punish evil. He will destroy it. Me as a sinful man, God cannot tolerate. That fear of God that knowledge of God, that all that exists, that all that I am and all that I would ever hope to be is not enough, will not measure up, and is violently in opposition to God. He cannot be any other. It says, it teaches us in Isaiah that we should be, our worship should be in fear and it should be in trembling for this holy God. If we are not, say it this way, if we are not trembling at God, we have not taken the time to know him. We have created a false God, which is an idol, a God of our mind, a God that is convenient. If it's a fuzzy-wuzzy bear kind of God that's going to fuzzy-wuzzy get along with us all the time, and that will just wink at our sin, and that will understand us, and all he wants to do, everybody to be happy, everybody to get along. God is love, and it's all going to be good. That is not God. That is an idol, and it is sinful, and it is beyond unbelief. We are creating and teaching a God that is not. We should be very, very careful when we speak about who God is. This God, his holiness, I'll get us to the end here because here we can be left in fear, right? The end of the story is because we couldn't save ourselves and because God's holiness includes his love, he came down and he judged and he poured out his wrath. God's wrath is always on those that deserve it, right? There's only one time ever that God poured out his wrath on somebody who did not deserve it, right? Because he's holy, he's perfect. Only one time ever God poured out his wrath on himself in the person of Jesus Christ on the cross, undeserved punishment for a perfect life that those who deserved it would get what we did not deserve. The fear of God. So what is our outflows? If we can understand that we need to be still and know who God is, if we understand that our concept of God is hard to come up to and we can always lower him too much, if we understand that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, that is what prods us and pulls us in God. If you're asking God for something, Lord, give me a holy fear. Give me a reverence. Because in that, it should spurn something. And our brother Isaiah 
leads us in this. So now let us turn back and let's finally get to it. Say thank you, preacher, for finally getting to it. Isaiah chapter 6. So let's look at what happens again. I'm going to read it again just for us. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. So what has happened here? Isaiah is going through his life, and all of a sudden, God grants him a vision of his majesty and his glory. So I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. He's given us language in our language as best as we can understand. Even his robe, the train, was so majestic that it filled the whole temple. Picture that. A majestic robe filling the entire room. Start to see a vision of God. And above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And the one called to the other. So there's these two seraphims, and the one calls to the other. The one says, over here, looking at each other, and says, and here's Isaiah seeing this picture. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And a house was filled with smoke. Everything is changing. The foundations are shaking. The building is being filled with smoke. The fire of the holy God is in this place. And I said, and here's the key for me, and I think for you, here's our application. If we actually see God, even to a degree, for who he really is, even one of the most righteous individuals, in quotes, of that day, a prophet Isaiah, comes to this. And I said, woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. In verse 5 there we have the first thing that will happen to us when we have a sense of God's holiness and his glory is a knowledge of how far we are apart. It will break us. It will all of a sudden, by seeing him, when we look at ourselves, we cannot help but not really notice our sins. We call them picadillos. We call them a little bit of this and a little bit of that and I shortcoming this and misgiving there and a little, little not as much as I wanted to. But when we see the holiness of God... And we start to understand that in the mirror, that reflection, it comes back. We see the vile, the evil. Isaiah goes, woe is me, for I am undone. Literally, I am falling apart in the knowledge of the holy. I am literally right standing before you right now, falling apart. There is nothing in me that is good. There is nothing in me. I am the vilest of the vile. My sin is ever before me. My lips are sinful. And I stand amongst a people that are sinful. When we're trying to manufacture repentance, when we're trying to manufacture a sorrow for our sin, you know what I'm talking about, right? There's times when we know we should be sorry, we say we're sorry, but we're not sorry at all. I wish I could be a little more sorry. We're not sorry because we're looking at ourselves and we're comparing ourselves to other people. Why should I be sorry to them? They're worse than me. We'll never be sorry when we're comparing ourselves here. We are only going to be sorrowful when we're comparing ourselves here. That is the only thing that will break a heart of stone. And make no mistake, that doesn't happen one time when we come to faith. That is the brokenness that needs to happen daily, hourly, by the minute. 
the vision of the high and the holy one. That's why we can't turn to God when we want. We can't come to him at our choosing. He needs to call us. He needs to reveal himself. As he reveals his holiness, run to it. And the second thing Isaiah shares for us, as he continues on, he was healed, which gives us a little bit of an insight what happens. God's holiness includes his compassion. And the seraphim came and he touched my mouth and he said, behold, this which has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. God has a remedy and the remedy is him himself again. He who is able to convict and create sorrow and create a certain knowledge of how far we are from the Holy One, how much sin we really have is also able to repair. Through pain, the lips had to be seared and burned. There's going to be anguish in the reparation. And then Isaiah does what? Look at verse 8. And this is not accidental, my friends. He moves on. Isaiah 6, verse 8. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? And then I said, here am I. Send me. When you're sitting alone on a Tuesday, don't you sometimes wish that you had more of a desire to do more for the Lord? I had a little more of a desire to set, set aside these things that are so trivial and my golf game and all these things. How come I don't have the desire as much as I would like? I, I, I respect the missionaries. I, I, I do. I, it's just not for me. Well, I submit that one of the reasons it's not for many of us is we don't have the vision of the high and the lofty one. Because once he saw it, once he repented, once God restored him, whom shall I send? Here am I. Send me. We don't need to focus on trying to do this and wanting to go there. We need to focus on the high and the holy one and God will take care of the rest. The willingness will be created in us through him. Focusing on him. Remember what we said before? All the problems of the church, the problems in our life, the problems that all of you see in me are generated because of my vision of the holy one is not high enough. If it was higher, I'd spend more time in him, knowing him, and he'd be changing me for his honor and his glory, not for my honor and my glory. And my last application thought is this. It's one that's personally kind of important to me. You hear all these beautiful praise songs we sing? You see all of this? If This breaks my heart a lot. Listen to the words. The melodies are beautiful as well, which I think is God breathed in the melodies, that God has given his spirit and ability. But look at the words. God of wonders, holy, 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 we bow down. To God be the glory. Oh, that I had a thousand tongues to sing. When that writer is writing those words, I am telling you they're not doing it between the eighth and ninth hole. I play a lot of golf, so I'm picking on me. Not doing it between the eighth and ninth hole often. Oh, we can see the beauty in his majesty, the beauty in the sand, the beauty in the stars, and the beauty in the sun out. We can see it all. But the depth to know, to be able to pen those words, comes from a time of quiet. Comes from a time alone. Comes from a time where we are worshiping God individually. He has called us to corporate worship, absolutely. 
but the individual worship. David is a good example in the Bible, right? When David would see the Lord, David would be dancing, David would be jumping, David was able to worship God alone. Annie and I were just in California. This happens in Ohio all the time too, so I'm not picking on California. I won't give you the name of the church. We went to one of the better Bible teaching churches out there in Orange County. They're on the radio. They have one of the better pastors teaching phenomenal. We went in church there. We went to worship. Maybe there's a thousand people there. The praise team, so you know, our, our friends and our praise leaders here will appreciate this. Praise team gets up there. They had great songs. They were songs from scripture. And the praise team was ready and the praise team was singing and the praise team was going. And out of the thousand people, Andy and I looked around, maybe 80, maybe 100, 10% for sure at best were singing. I mean, that praise team was getting the sweat up. They were trying to get the people going. And maybe by the end, maybe they were 30% singing. And the question I have is, if we can't be led to worship in worship with the team that's up there trying what is happening on the Tuesday. Once a week for us to come here, that's not worship. I'm talking to myself, asking you to listen in. When we're alone, are we getting to the place where we are brought into worship? When we are brought into worship, if it's fair to confess this to you, sometime God puts us in a place where we can do nothing but. Maybe we make one or two wise choices by his grace. So I had all this time to drive, right? And I have hundreds and hundreds of songs and sermons and others on my iPod. And sometimes it does take repetition. I was listening to Handel's Messiah. I was listening to a bunch of different stuff, listening to A.W. Tozer and others. And I had hours and hours all by myself. And after hours and hours, and by the second day, I had, you know, five hours in one segment, five hours in the next. I was listening to the St. John's Children's Choir. Beautiful rendition of the song, Holy, Holy, Holy is the Lord God Almighty. Holy, Holy you know, is the Lord God Almighty. Beautiful song. I wish I could sing well. They have a second half that has a descant. It has this soprano that just goes up there. And the soprano is going way up. And when we have it, maybe we'll play it for you sometime, maybe in a week or two. I listened to that song maybe 10, 15 times in a row. And I nearly had to pull over because the tears were flowing. I was just so thankful. This is no glory to me. It took God hours. I had to put me in a car by myself in the middle of nowhere, New York State, driving amongst the mountains. Didn't have reception on my phone. You had to get me away for hours and hours. And I do have a good stereo system in the car. So Mandel's Messiah and the Hallelujah Chorus and the St. John's Children's Choir, it brought me to tears. I said, Lord, why does it take this? Why does it take this? When he answered me, because you never spend hours with me. You're busy, son. Let's pray. Let's bow in prayer, please. Father God, if we confess anything this morning, we confess that you are holy. Lord, we confess that even by our words, we have to be careful. We are not going to give you the honor and the glory due your name, except if you teach us, if you help us, and if you take it in our heart. Our heart understands more than our mind can, can comprehend and share. So we speak to you, Lord, now from our heart that we get the sense that you are holy, that you are transcendent, and we give you honor and glory. And Lord, help us be a people. Move us now into repentance. Move us into a humility to know our sin, but to know that you are our Savior. That you are not only the one who can convict, you are the one who can save. Lord, teach us to be in your word. Teach us to be a people that can be fearful 
of taking your commands lightly. You have told us to spend day and night, to meditate in your law day and night. You've taught us that the fear of you is the beginning of wisdom, that you have taught us that your word will grow us in faith and will bring us to you so that we can glorify your name. Lord, don't leave us alone. Grab us, grab a hold of us, pull us towards you. And I pray for every person here, Lord, grant us the wisdom and the strength to follow you, to get rid of the unimportant, and to spend time in prayer with you in your word. Help us to understand your holiness. Help us praise your name that others may see and they can understand the God that we serve is worth serving. And that many others will come to faith in this community for your glory. We pray this, Lord, humbly, and we pray it in your name. Amen.